Climb Unfiltered. Brought to you by Investor Ladder. Hello, welcome back to the Climb Podcast. This is your host, Ivan Meekins. In this episode of Climb, I am joined by three times winner of UK CEO of the Year, Ian Fishwick. Ian is a true veteran of the business world with an astonishingly consistent record over his career as an MD and CEO. Over his time at Adept Technology Group, Ian and his team reported an increased EBITDA for 29 consecutive years. What a record. In this interview, we're going to get into some of the traits that Ian thinks are paramount to maintaining consistency in business. Some of these are often overlooked as founders aim to grow quickly, but Ian is a classic example of how to win in business year in, year out. Ian is also a master of buying and selling businesses, having successfully completed over 40 technology mergers and acquisitions in his career. And he sheds a light in this conversation on how founders can set themselves up for a successful exit if they are looking to sell. Ian finally exited Adept earlier this year in a hundred million pound deal, so he's someone worth listening to on this front, I'd say. Ian is also a man of stories and has collected all of his most useful lessons in the fantastic book, The Street Smart MBA, Mastering Business Acumen Without Going to School. So we're going to dive in and pull out some of Ian's favorite stories from here and see how they can apply to you guys. Without any further ado, here's Ian. Let's get started. Ian, thank you so much for joining this podcast, Climb 23. It's very exciting. How are you feeling? I'm just impressed with the event. It's, it's astonishing. It is. Yeah. It's a wonderful event. I'm really excited to speak to you because you've got an incredible story. Double redundancies to building a business in your bedroom to raising it, selling it eventually for a hundred million, which was just last month. So yep. congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Life's not quite what you expect. <laughs> no. What I'd be really interested in, I think a lot of listeners as well, is to kind of hear just a little bit about the story. So maybe start off to like how, where, where it all went wrong and then how it all went so right again. I had one of those classic corporate careers. It was in telecoms actually, you know, where things were going great. And by the age of 40, 41, I was running the business at 250 million turnover. And then in a weird 18 months, despite a couple of pretty spectacular successes, I ended up being redundant twice. And that taught me a huge amount. Of, I mean, first of all, in cable TV, you know, I, I was running, there were four big regions in the UK. I, I was running London, Kent and Essex, you know, it's all the real big ones. Okay. And, I got, and you said cable TV. What we know is those for Virgin Media. Gotcha. Right. And I got down to the last two interviews for who would be the boss of the UK and I came second. Somebody has to come second. And suddenly realised that that meant I was redundant. Yeah. So I'd gone from being, wow, this fantastic career has been made redundant. And that taught me that, hang on a bit, the closer you get to the top, sometimes there will be corporate reorganisations and you're just in the wrong place. Sure. And the second, straight after that, so Americans rang me up and said, look, we've just bought seven UK businesses, it's 250 million turnover, do you want to run it? And this was in the middle of the dot-com bubble and I said to them, look, all the new guys losing money, how much money we're losing, how much money have we got? And they said, well, we lost 20 million last year and you inherit a, a debt to BT of 19 million. Can you fix it quick? And in an absolute astonishing 16 months, the UK went from a 20 million loss to 1.4 million profitability. And then about midnight one night, because the head of us at Atlanta, I got a phone call to say, we've got no idea you've done this so quick. In the States, we can't keep up. We're going into chapter of bankruptcy. And I said, well, hang on a minute. We've stopped the losses, but I've not repaid the debt that you get right. me at the start. So none of you coming down with us. Okay. And I had to pull all the UK guys together and say, it's spectacular what you've done, but it, it's gone wrong. And that taught me that, you know, you can even be incredibly successful as a subsidiary, but if you're part of an overall group, it's the finances of the group. Yeah. Uh, so 
weirdly, I ended up being medical twice in 18 months. Uh, and that was a very dark period of my life. Right? And I, yeah. I don't deny that sort of, you know, I couldn't understand what happened. And uh, I got very depressed. I probably drank too much. I was in pain to live with, you know, my wife and the family. I had to put up with a lot in that bit. How long was that period for you, that that kind of dark period? It's part of a year. Okay. And it dawned on me for three or four months. Who do you just all still with me, by the way, right? Uh, it dawned on me that the only way I was going to get back in the industry was to set up my own business because, you know, the dot-com bubble had bust. The banks had pulled the money out on all, on all the new competitors. So I remortgaged my house and, uh, and I started a business in a spare bedroom. And as you say, 20 years later, it was sold 100 million. 20 years well spent, I would say. What gave you the idea to start this organisation? Original, original concept was to have set up a telecoms business that, that supplied stuff to small businesses because the mantra was that you can't make money at small businesses because the support costs are too high. And I said, yeah. that's not true. If you start with a blank piece of paper and you won't automate the back office, then you can create a new kind of telco. And we literally built a, a brand new telecoms company from an empty building within six weeks. Wow. Bought a business and all that with tens of thousands of customers. And we went on from there. We then, as telecoms and IT merged, we became a 85% IT at the end. Right. So we were 70 million sales a year by the end of it. Wow. And it was quite a remarkable journey. I mean, I, I had the honour of being UK Chief Executive here three times. Yeah. And when I got to the end, because I, I then became part-time chairman, it dawned on me that it sort of, uh, uh, been the boss for 29 years and I managed to get 29 consecutive years of rising operating profit, EBITDA. Despite the fact when you look back and 14 of those 29 were either economic recession or uncertainty. So yeah. we just kept going. And all through that, I've never been a great fan of, of formal training schemes where you just set up a new PowerPoint. So I don't know anybody who says to the mates, I saw some great PowerPoints today. I tend to think that, that people, people like stories. If you can tell them stories they understand, then they go and tell the mates. Right? So, so I've always tried to teach people about just telling tales. Yeah, brilliant. Which obviously led to this, this book we have in front of us here. The Street Smart MBA, Mastering Business Acumen Without Going to School. Which is a great book, it's full of Nice little tales, very easy to dip in and out. Quick stories, so easy to consume too. Do you see this book as kind of distilling all of the lessons that you learned in those years of I mean, of placement to 100 million? It was a combination of things. First of all, it was like a cathartic exercise when I finally stood down from being like, you know, almost 24-7 doing it. Yeah. You know, let's dump it before I go see now, I forget it. <laughs> you know, if we can try and pass something on to the next generation, then great. It, it, it's out there, right. And because, as you say, all the stories are one to four pages long, they're easy to be out of. And they're not sector-specific. I've deliberately not told any technology stories, even though I've been in tech all my life. Mm. You know, a lot of the stories are about people, really. Okay. And what was the reason for that? Why didn't you want to, you know, obviously you're a specialist in that, that niche of building tech business, so why didn't you want to sort of narrow the focus? Because I think it, uh, a lot of the things that, that made me successful were nothing to do with tech. This is easy by example. There's one story in the that I call people can be good, bad, and average. And what I mean by that is, and this is a true story, but I'll try and not name the people, right? Is everybody says, you know, we've got to go and hire the best people. Well, it's not possible for everybody to hire the best people, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I turn it around and I say, let's get the best out of people. That's what you want to do. Yeah. And I took over a business at one point where they had about a thousand people, right? And it was an industry where Every competitor had agreed to share the same key props indicators. So there was leak tables and everything. And when they were given to me, I was like, wow, my new business is either bottom or next to bottom, age of 30, in almost everything. Mm-hmm. And I took a massive gamble and I bust a thousand people into a massive corporate centre 
And I told them the truth, the children and the devils. And I just don't, I, 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 just, I find this offensive. You know, I live around here. This is my home, right? But, but also, you know, this is the only place in the world that's been deregulated to offer, you know, internet, telecoms and, and, and TV. So temporarily, you know, if you could ever get to the top of this table, you could tell your grandkids, might have been a short period of time, but we were the best in the world at what we did. Yeah. Why don't we just have a crack at it? And it was astonishing what reaction that that one day had. And everywhere I went in the place was, was, was absolutely buzzing because we had about eight sites. Uh, and at the end of that year, we were either top or second on everything. And as often happens, you then get a tap on the shoulder saying, you've done a great job here, we are going to try and do it somewhere else. So I was moved and sent down south and that's right. end up in London, right? And the new guy who followed me, within a matter of weeks, managed to have a, a row with some of the senior managers and they kind of took the foot off the gas. And at the end of that year, they were halfway down the table. So the same roughly thousand people over a three-year period had been bottom of the league, top of the league, and middle. And that's why I say, you know, it's not about different people. It's about the way you treat them and how you motivate them. And I think that's a fantastic example. And therefore, I tend to say people who are running teams that are not doing so great. Start by looking at yourself as the boss at the team. Mm. Well, let me just ask a couple of questions because, you know, for people listening to this to see a business get built over 20 years to being sold for 100 million and, and, and such consistent results as well, year in, year out, throughout economic crises, what do you think has kind of been the ma- a major contributing factor to your consistency, not just to your success, but to that consistent growth? I think it's about being completely honest with people. Okay. Right. I think you should treat people like grown-ups. Honesty is a double-edged sword. It means you've got to tell the good bits and the bad bits. But it got to a point where, you know, I would pull, say, the top dozen people together and say, we've been going for so long where every year's been better than the previous one. Do you actually want this to be the year where we lose the record? Mm. And we'd all sit there and go, no, not really. And then even the times about we'd sit there and say, what do we actually need to do? Because it doesn't even matter if this year is 10 quid or a million pound better than a year. We just a point to principle. We're not going backwards. Right. And we'd all sit there and say, so what are we going to do? So even when it got really, really rough, there was, I realised that I, I can't do it on my own. I think I can point the direction and then somebody else has got to go and do it, right? And there's two types of people who have got to work. There's those who've got to work to pay the bills but hate the job they do. There's also people who've got to work to pay the bills and love what they do. Yeah. And, and I've assumed they're doing something special. You've got to create a feeling that they're doing something special. Okay. Yeah. And they're making a difference. And do you have a specific to the time? I guess the last story that you told is a good example of how you can make someone people feel sort of included in the in the story and buying into you know what you're trying to do as, as an organisation. What about any uh, challenges? Just because you had consistency doesn't mean it was always easy, I, I suppose. So, what were some of the main you know challenges that you faced in, in building the business, and how would you go about resolving this? Was enormously difficult. I can imagine you know. You're running a technology business, uh, and the only thing that's constant technology is change, right? So whatever products you've got today, probably won't be the right ones in three, four, five, six years' time. Yeah. You've got to create an environment where a lot of your people are working on today, but as the boss, you're stood back and you're looking constantly 18, 24 months ahead and trying to work out, you know, whenever the trend's going and trying to spot problems early, constantly looking for, you know, what do you next? I mean, I effectively reinvented the business three times. You know, started looking after small businesses, then we moved up the chain and started looking after much bigger businesses and public sector, and then we said, right, telecoms and IT effectively merged. Let's become a much wider IT business, and then we did cloud and 
big data networks and IT support and security and all sorts of things. Uh, so there were, there were three very deliberate reinventions. So one idea will last you for 20 years. There's one other. Mm. So I suppose constant innovation and, and keeping your... Absolutely, constant innovation. And, and how do you keep your company or, or you ahead of the game when, when things are moving so quickly, especially now with entrepreneurs, like what would you recommend they do? Well, let's just, let's just do innovation. Innovation to me drops into two things. Is that people tend to talk about the technology, the, the technical innovation. Yeah. You've also got to have commercial innovation as well. You know, if you're selling a, a similar product to somebody else, try and do it in a different way. For example, British Aerospace completely reinvented the, the jet engine market when, when they said, Rather than paying a fortune up front, why don't you pay us by the hour when the airplane flies? Oh, right, okay. So they completely changed the whole, the whole model. You know, there are different ways of thinking about what you do. So commercial innovation is as important as technical innovation. Mm. It makes sense. I guess technology moves so quickly now and everyone's in tech, it's, it's going to be hard to be completely unique with a tech product, but the way in which you communicate that and sell that could be completely unique. You're going to have to set yourself trying to have better customer service than anybody else. Okay. Does your book have a, a, a tale that you can tell us about customer service? Yeah, you know, the, I set this out to be the most professional in the industry. Now, most professional, it means that we're not going to be relying on the cheapest. Most professional doesn't mean most expensive. There's loads of things that you can do that cost more money. So I'll give you one silly example. In the early days of broadband, the broadband wouldn't work. And I rang the call centre, and the guy said, try this, and then rings back, it doesn't work. It didn't work. So I rang the back, and I said, can I speak to Dave? And the guy said, it's from me, okay. If the guy had said to me, you through to Dave Foster, this is my phone number, just ring me direct the next time. It would have cost no money whatsoever, but I suddenly thought these guys were great. So I then had to go through an even longer tale to say what was wrong with it, what failed, you know, etc. So there's all that I can give you loads of examples like that. Number of people who send me an email and the phone number's not on the bottom. We used to send out emails where it always had your picture on it. So even though you'd never physically met us, it felt like you had. Right. You know, there are loads and loads of examples of things that you can do that don't cost any money. But it's such small things, and it's a, it's a compounding effect, I suppose, of all of those things put together that drive Absolutely. the impression of you. Yeah, I remember t- t- taking one of the junior managers to Wembley one day with, with a customer, and, and the customer walked in and said, oh, hello, Tuna, I haven't seen you for ages. And I thought, I know that you've seen his photograph on the email a million times, but you've never physically met. And he, he can't even remember that. Mm. Well, just to build on that, I mean, in the book, you deliver a great story of, of a roast chicken. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit about what it's like to do the small things what, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was very lucky one year when my boss said to me, go to America and go and visit uh, 10 companies who won the best customer service in their industry. And the only thing you'd come and they've got, they've won the best customer service, come and explain why. And, and I went to a company one day who'd won the highest sales per square foot of any supermarket in the world. Now, they only had two supermarkets. Which you think that these guys are out selling, you know, Walmart and Tesco and people. It's astonishing. And the guy who owned it was an incredible innovator. A lot of his ideas have been copied now, right? But he had this very simple idea that if you can smell food, they'll buy more food. So he was the first to invent things like install bakeries where you can smell bread and, right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And then he invented, uh, you know, the rotisserie chickens in, in, uh, and I've been, and I've been listening to, to this story about, you know, the famous rotisserie chicken coat. Uh, and they said, you can feel free, go and have a wander around. And I was stood next to this resistor counter and exactly the opposite happened to what I was expecting. This lady walked in and she slammed on the counter this package in silver foil, opened it, and there was a carcass of a chicken. And she said to the guy, this chicken was horrible. You'd burnt it, it was dry, I want my money back. And the guy said, well, you've eaten it. You can't have your money back, it's ridiculous. And she said, I've got three teenage sons. If you stand still for 30 seconds, they'll eat you as well. <laughs> you know, on a Sunday lunchtime, you can't say to them, 
you've got nothing to eat because I don't like it. But it doesn't change the fact it was rubbish. Mm. He said, I'm not giving you money back, giving it. So she shouted a few expletives and stormed out the door and said, I'm never coming here again. I thought, wow, after listening for an episode, greatest places, that's not really what I expected. And the store manager walked across to him and I thought, no, this is only interesting. And the store manager said to the guy who just had the argument with the woman, how much does a customer typically spend you a week? And I'll do it in English, right? And she said, 100 quid, so it's a bit more than that, but it'll do, right? He said, uh, how old was she? I said, I don't know. He said, I guess. 35, late 30s, she actually had children quite young. She said, right, 58 weeks in a year, so that's £5,000 Christmas, probably £6,000 a year people spent on average in a year. She's gone to Zoe Marks in town, and she's gone across the road now for the next 30 years. So it's like £150,000, £180,000. I just walked out of the door because she wouldn't give her a four-quid chicken. Mm. And that's a fantastic explanation of how you should always look at the lifetime value of a customer. And there's going to be blips in the relationship along the way, but give in on the little things. And the, the, the funny part was, when I came back, they said to me, well, the price of you, of you going to America is when you come back, we'll get about 1,500 people together, and you've got to talk to two or three hundred at a time and tell them what you've learned. Right. So I, I used to do this thing called a walk across America. And I'd walk on stage with, with a, a shopping bag, and I'd literally pull something out, and the object reminded me with which story to tell. Okay. Right. So every time I did it, it came into a slightly different all, which made it a bit more spontaneous for me. But always at the bottom of the bag, there was a rubber chicken. And I'd tell the story about chicken last, and I'd throw it in the audience to show it catch. Right. And the story became quite well known because of the, the, it was an interesting way to end the whole thing. And we got to the end, which is probably the, the fifth day on the trot, we, we'd done these big presentations, right? Somebody must have said something that I was going on, and I wasn't really listening. And in the bottom, there was a chicken, but it, it was in a tray. And the adrenaline's pumping after an hour, as, as you can imagine, right? So I pick up the chicken, and I throw in the audience, and suddenly I realize that, oh my Lord, I've just thrown a frozen chicken in the audience. Oh no. Right. And uh, one, one of the service techs was, was a big tall guy who was a very keen amateur rugby player and he jumped up and just called it as though it was a rugby line hit and spectacularly bowed to the audience and the audience just erupted to thinking that was a fantastic finale what a clever way to finish and he winked at me right thinking wow uh, and he saved me for one of those great infamous headlines of boss kills staff with frozen chicken <laughs> made it all look so good on your LinkedIn <laughs> none of us are perfect yeah no indeed indeed I imagine a lot of listeners, especially, you know, this event in Climate 23 is, is, is bringing entrepreneurs together. It's a, lo a lot of them, you know, will be looking for ways to, you know, build up a successful business, but also to exit a business as well. You know, and, and you've done, you know, both of those things and, and one of those things very recently. What advice would you give, you know, someone who's considering exiting their business and, and doing it successfully? I want to sell the business once, but I've done 42 acquisitions. I spent a lot of my life buying other small businesses, right? Yeah. So I face this question constantly. Sure. And the first thing I say to people is, are you sure you're ready? You should have started to get it ready two years before the end because you need tax advice as to how to make sure that, you know, the options you give to staff and, you know, who do you want to earn, earn, earn bits, pay it back? Get it structured correctly, otherwise they'll get it wrong. And a lot of HMRC rules are, you know, these things have got to be in place at least a year before. So the number of people who decided at the end, you know, I feel guilty, I should give Jim 5% to this, he's, he's been great. But they're not prepared and ready for it. And it's a bit like, nobody would sell your house without hoovering it first and perhaps doing a bit of venting. So why do you try and do the same thing with your business? You've got to get it ready. You've got to do the death rate here. You've got to make sure that all your management accounts are in a situation where they're easy to understand. So, so 
bringing in advisors to show you how to present your information and get it easy to understand by the buyer is hugely useful. I mean, on average, I used to look at 75 businesses a year and buy one or two. Mm-hmm. So the real question is not why did I buy the one, why did I turn down the 73 or 74? And what, you know, so I used to do a presentation uh, for some of the big banks called nine out of 10 babies are ugly. Right. And what I think about that was I'd start them and say, you know, you're all business owners. Do you think your business is your baby? Everybody. Why do I not like most of them? And then I'd go through the reasons why people don't buy. And you've got to think from the other person's point of view and think, okay, they're not going to like that. They're not going to like that. And straighten it out. Yeah. But also tell the truth. You know, if it's genuinely a family business and, you know, if you sell it, then you're not going to need the five or six people that are employed by your family because they're in reality they're working part time. Be open about it. Tell the truth. Uh, but the major bit is plan and get advice two years before. Okay, good. Sound advice. Thank you for that. Just before we wrap up then, Ian, what's on the horizon for you? You know, you've sold the business now. You know, you've, you've exited successfully. Is it retirement now or are you? Well, what's no, your plan? No, I mean, sort of, a, I'd already stepped down to the two days a week channel before I sold the technology group. Uh, it, so once it was announced that the debts were sale, I was immediately offered a... a under the Gigabit Britain project, there's a lot of people trying to put fiber all across the UK. And the ones that I'm really interested in are the ones who are trying to put fiber into rural areas. So I've joined a business that's raised 200 million to try and put fiber in villages and the hard places to get. Because it's very sad that for decades, young families have left villages and rural areas to go to the big towns to find work and things. Yeah. And in this environment now where you come up from Hall, if we can get the correct fast internet access into those places, then I think we're going to transform what rural life looks like. You know, and I said to the, the staff the other day, who I just met, said, let's just start it again, right? So I feel like I've gone full circle back to where you started again. I said, to them, look, in 20 years time, if the whole of rural life looks different to what it does now, wouldn't it feel great to put your grandkids on the knee and said, yeah, we did that. Yeah. So that's my next one. Fantastic. And I tell you what, I'm all for that because I found out that you're, the company that you're on the board for is based in Tumber Twelves. My old one was. Oh, is it the old one? Okay, fair enough. I, I live in Tumber Twelves. <laughs> so do I. No way. Well, there you go. What a weird ending. Let's, let's meet for a beer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Climb. Remember to follow us on iTunes and Spotify if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. And if you really like it, tell your friends about us too because it helps us spread the word. Really big thank you to CRSI and Investor Letter for sponsoring this entire event. And if you wanted to learn more about the Climb event and how to get involved with Investor Letter and attend Climb 24 next year, please get in touch via the website at investorletter.com forward slash new hyphen events and the team will get back to you. Thanks again, guys. See you soon.